supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. That's why you hear that same old Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, with co-host Eleanor Goldfield. Today on the program, we start with a new book by Tony Brasunis, Red, White, and Blind, the truth about disinformation and the path to media consciousness. We'll be joined by Tony, as well as Ken Burrows from San Francisco State University, longtime contributor to Project Censored. Later in the program, Eleanor Goldfield sat down and spoke with Dr. Margaret Flowers. They'll talk about the millions of Americans being kicked off of Medicaid and the state of the American healthcare system. All today on the Project Censored show. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we are delighted to bring two guests one of whom is no stranger to the Project Censored show. It is Ken Burroughs. Ken Burroughs has taught holistic health studies at San Francisco State University for 32 years now. Ken has been on the Media Freedom Foundation board and has worked with us at Project Censored for a very long time. He's a longtime contributor to the book, and we have partnered with him in many different ways, including at many conferences talking about media, propaganda, and of course the role that media play in our society around things like our civic health. Ken Burrows, I'd like to welcome you back to the Project Censored show. Thank you, Mickey. We're also delighted today to welcome a new guest to the Project Censored show, author Tony Brasunas, a nonpartisan freelance journalist who was censored for covering the 2016 Democratic primary from a perspective apparently too friendly to Bernie Sanders certainly something we wrote about at the time at Project Censored. Prasunas' writings have been published in both corporate and independent media. His second book is Red, White, and Blind, The Truth About Disinformation and the Path to Media Consciousness. Tony, welcome to the Project Censored show. Delighted to be here, Mickey. Thank you very much. And as I mentioned off air, this is the first of what I'm going to imagine are several potential appearances, Tony, because your book and, and the work that we do at Project Censored overlap pretty extraordinarily. And you'll have a lot of great things to say that I think our audience will certainly resonate with. But Ken Burrows, let's start with you and have a, a frame for the conversation. And you also have another very important event that you're putting on coming up addressing a lot of this stuff. So Ken, tell us a little bit about this. Well, on the campus I teach, and from what I hear across the, the country, the urgency of social justice is part of this, but also there's a growing culture of complaint really concern among many of our students and our youth, but it's become a problem for how universities and college campuses can handle it. And it's part of what seems to be a larger collective crisis that we're going through as a culture. So we've uh, gathered together a conference that will take place a week from the airing time of our discussion here, inviting people to think about this. We're calling this conference from polarization to integration, a new vision for health and human evolution. We're holding this as though this ultimate crisis that we're in as a society means that we're not able to solve our mounting problems and we're not able to even be in good civil discourse. So the crisis is not economic or environmental. It's much more imaginal, if you will, or mental and social. And it's fed by unacknowledged assumptions and polarized beliefs that act 
act as filters that really shape how we what we see and what we don't. And this is also fed by the media system. So the conference, just to finish up this little brief introduction, we're mental creatures and what thoughts, beliefs, and conditions bring out the worst in us and what bring out the best. And we'll be focusing on five specific column reflective topics and practices that help us foster integrative thinking versus polarized thinking. The shifting from dualistic to holistic thought, media awareness, training, awakening possibility and creativity through art, artists and outliers, and then really reframing the social justice search. And again, this great quest that we're all in, how do we move beyond the culture wars toward really cultural healing? And finally, we'll finish with community and the sense of community dialogue, uh, cross-cultural dialogue. We'll be uh, framing all of this throughout the day and love anyone that has interest to uh, show up and attend virtually or directly in person. So, Ken, do you have a website or any place that you can find information for that or something we could post? We don't have a website devoted to this. It's on campus April 21st. Um, It's part of also a week of uh, the National Conversation Week where we're really urging people to be in conversations that are meaningful and uh, practicing listening is a way to move beyond our own implicit biases. Yeah, and this is at San Francisco State University, Friday, April 21. This program airs throughout this week. When we air on KPFA, the conference will already be underway. But of course, the show will be posted at Project Censored, and we'll be sure that if there's any kind of a link, I'll make sure to get it up there so that people can can access that. And of course, I'll be speaking there with you, Ken Burroughs, and it's an honor to be involved in these events. Two of the books that I've done in the last several years, one, United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation and Post-Truth America, What We Can Do About It as well as Let's Agree to Disagree, and a Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, Media Literacy. These are all overlapping. I think, Ken, you really set the stage for an open conversation with Tony Brasunas here. His book, Red, White, and Blind, The Truth About Disinformation and the Path to Media Consciousness, also addresses the challenges of censorship, propaganda, narrative control. And of course, part of that is the lack of dialogue and conversation that we have in our society, specifically through the establishment press, about very important topics that are often contentious or controversial, the very things about which we should be discussing earnestly and openly and transparently are often the things that get some of us in the most trouble. So, Tony, this is a good place to bring you in because you've got an incredible story to share, and I want our listeners to hear more about your book, Red, White, and Blind. So talk to us a little bit about the process of this book, and I know you have a story you want to share. Again, great to be here, Mickey, and thanks so much for having me. And yeah, I'll be at the conference as well. So looking forward to that very much. So as you mentioned in my little bio there, yeah, I was censored for covering the 2016 Democratic Convention from a perspective a little bit too friendly to Bernie Sanders. It's a story that I talk about. I devote a chapter of the book to. I was writing for Huffington Post in 2016 and covering the Democratic primary from the Bernie Sanders perspective. And everything was going fine. I wrote about the primary from a number of perspectives, looking at a number of different topics. And often my pieces would be very well received. There wasn't as many journalists covering the Bernie Sanders perspective. And so sometimes my pieces on Huffington Post would receive 50,000 or 100,000 views, occasionally be featured on the homepage of Huffington Post, and everything was going well, right until the convention itself. And on the eve of the convention, I wrote this piece saying the reason that many intelligent progressives and independents will not be able to support Hillary Clinton. And I went through some of the reasons focusing on the issue of trust. In this piece, I was basically arguing to the superdelegates because neither Bernie nor Hillary were going to have enough pledged delegates to claim the nomination outright. It was going to come down to the superdelegates, these people that vote with the strength of 10,000 mere mortals, 
they were going to decide who got the nomination. And so I was arguing, look, you should really go for Bernie Sanders. He's been getting more and more popular as the primary has gone on. And on this issue of trust, he's way out ahead of Hillary Clinton. And Donald Trump had won the nomination on the Republican side. And I said, it's going to come down to independence and it's going to come down to some of these issues. And so I argued for Bernie Sanders. You know, I wasn't trying to write the most profound piece that had ever been written, but I thought it was a fairly important piece to be considered at the convention. And I published the piece, I went to sleep. The next morning, it was gone. The piece was gone. It had been taken down. It was censored. And then just briefly about this story, in this one story, there's sort of the kernel of both the worst and the best of what's happening in the media today. The worst is that, is this sort of top-down, archaic system of media decided that one voice was not welcome anymore and thought it could unilaterally silence it. And so my piece was gone. I would never write for Huffington Post again. I had a buddy who's a lawyer write them something. They gave us back a sort of middle finger kind of response. It was done. So that's the bad side of the story. The good side is I went online that day and I found a number of people on Reddit saying, hey, where's Tony Bersunis's article? I want to share this. I was reading it. Oh, here it is. And somebody had copied and pasted it. And I went and I grabbed it, put it on medium.com, where I occasionally wrote, put a link on Twitter, got on the plane to Philadelphia for the convention. I arrive in Philadelphia. A number of people come up to me like, oh, yeah, we know we read your piece. We don't know why it was taken down. And what I would learn over the next couple of days is that that piece was the most widely read piece I wrote the whole year. So despite the fact of this archaic system wanting to silence me and doing the best that they could... What I write about and what I talk about in Red, White, and Blind in the optimistic parts of the book, and there's plenty of darker chapters, but the optimistic part is that I think we're in what I call a new enlightenment, where I compare the internet to the printing press and how that invention transformed the power dynamics of society at the time and gave birth to the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and eventually our constitution, the French Revolution, the American Revolution. The internet is doing the same thing now. And in that moment, I was able to go online connect with people, put it on this thing called Twitter, on this thing called Medium, and that those ideas got out even more broadly than had I had the microphone of the big mainstream media. So that's what led to Red, White, and Blind. And that experience was the very beginning of this book. I started writing it in 2019, uh, and I just published it. It's just out now in 2023. Your website is tonybrasunas.com, T-O-N-Y-B-R-A-S-U-N-A-S.com. Is that the place that people can find out more and get copies of your book, Tony? Absolutely. What I tell people, if they don't want to learn how to spell my last name, uh, redwhiteandblind.com is a good place to go. I just tell people redwhiteandblind.com. You'll find everything. You can subscribe to my Substack. You can get the book, connect with me on Twitter and Facebook and everything. So redwhiteandblind.com or tonybersunas.com. The subtitle of the book, The Truth About Disinformation and the Path to Media Consciousness, does set it up that you're going to be analyzing some of these darker issues and problems, but also offering potential solutions. And like you just did now, you you talked about there's a hopeful element of it. Even in times when you're being censored or deplatformed, truth is a little like water. It finds a way. It'll find the crack. It'll it gets in somehow where it where it's going, right? Which is pretty fascinating. One of the things that's really interesting here too about the book is that you talk about a history of this issue. So this isn't new. And of course, something we've done at Project Censored for a long time is talk about the history of controlling information. I mean, the history of propaganda goes back eons. But Tony, where did you start this? Where did you start looking at the history? 
The book focuses on the period since 2000, really, and, and the deregulation of media. But I do several times go back. I spend one whole chapter early on looking at Operation Mockingbird and why we know that the infiltration of the intelligence agencies has been going on for a long, long time. And I really want people to understand that. That's a big part of disinformation. But I even go back further. If you dig into the book, because I think it's important, I go back to what I call the birth of propaganda, which is right around World War I, Walter Lippmann, Edward Bernays, that whole time. And that actually builds on the work of Freud and the uh, psychology, breakthroughs in psychology and how to do mass manipulation of consciousness. So I do spend some time going there and I go all the way and then I walk back through this notion of independent or professional journalism that is actually a concept that was invented by the Rockefellers and they funded the uh, original journalism schools to justify consolidation of media. Otherwise, Americans were not going to accept the consolidation of media. So I think that's really important. But I really want the book to be a book about today. So I'd say it's, it's 80, 90 percent about the period since 2000. The historical roots I find to be very important. I mean, I'm biased as an historian and journalist. Is history matters, and I think it's important. And you mentioned uh, the Committee on Public Information, George Creel, the Creel Committee, where Edward Bernays worked along with, well, 75,000 volunteers that were called Four Minute Men that went out across the country to propagandize around the need for America to enter World War I when many Americans did not want to enter that great war. And in fact, Wilson won on a peace ticket in 1916. So propaganda definitely had its, its impact on that. And so, Tony Bersunis, you said you wanted to share an excerpt and story from your text, and we're going to do that. I just wanted to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Ken Burroughs is with us from San Francisco State University, teaching holistic studies there, and Ken is a longtime contributor to Project Censored, Validated Independent News Stories, and so on. Doing a conference here on the 21st of April. Ken's going to talk a little bit more about that and join in and maybe even ask a couple questions to Tony Bersunis after this brief musical break. So please stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment today, we are joined by Ken Burrows from San Francisco State University, also longtime participant and contributor to Project Censored and board member at the Media Freedom Foundation. We're also joined by independent journalist and author Tony Brasunas. We're talking about his recent book, Red, White, and Blind, The Truth About Disinformation and the Path to Media Consciousness. So this segment, we're going to talk a little bit more in detail with Tony about his book. And Ken, I think you might want to jump in here and, and chime in and have a few things you wanted to say. But Tony, let's go back and start with you because I, I got excited about the history that you cover in the book and the history of the subject. But I think you want to share with us the importance of storytelling. And you have a really fascinating story that's connected to the outset of this book. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, I wanted this book not to be seen as like the Democrat or the Republican critique of the media, but a more, it's a nonpartisan, bipartisan issue. Red, white, and blind were all in a state of deception. And so I used some storytelling of issues that I think are nonpartisan to do this. 
So this excerpt is from early on in the book. It's a chapter. The headline, or the uh, I have a little epigraph, which is a quote from William Casey, the director of the CIA. And his quote is, we will know our disinformation campaign has been successful when everything the American people believe is false. Virginia Roberts folded eight white towels into stacks, ensuring the seams lined up and the spa's floral logo appeared in the corner. She placed the stacked towels on a polished granite countertop. There were no customers, so she tied her blonde hair into a ponytail and resumed reading where she had left off in an illustrated guide to massage therapy. She found the book fascinating. I'm only 15, she reminded herself. But she had a goal now, to ascend from mere attendant at the luxurious Mar-a-Lago resort to real professional massage therapist. A woman with pointy black locks of hair appeared. Virginia offered the woman tea, as she always did, and asked politely whether she had an appointment. The woman didn't have an appointment, but she accepted the tea. With a friendly smile and with a proper English accent, the woman asked Virginia several questions about the spa before she asked about her copious notes in the massage book. With a bashful smile, Virginia shared her goal. The woman told Virginia that her boss was a wealthy man, and as it turned out, he was looking for a massage therapist for his frequent jet trips around the world. He would pay for her training if Virginia showed the right enthusiasm for the job. The woman handed Virginia her card and introduced herself. Her name was Ghislaine Maxwell. It was June 2000, and a three-year nightmare was about to unfold for Virginia as she followed in the path of dozens perhaps hundreds or even thousands of young girls who were abused by Jeffrey Epstein. Later that warm summer night, Virginia visited Epstein's Palm Beach mansion, as many of the unfortunate girls did before they accompanied him to Paris, New York, London, and little St. James, Epstein's private island in the Virgin Islands. The girls were offered as sexual property, escorts, and quote-unquote massage therapists, to some of the world's most powerful and wealthy men. Millionaires and billionaires, former presidents and foreign royalty, senators and judges, hedge fund tycoons and Hollywood producers, powerful attorneys and famous actors, chairman of boards and CEOs of giant conglomerates. They all flew on Epstein's plush private plane. The plane was nicknamed the Lolita Express. Ascending from a resort attendant to a professional massage therapist was not in the cards for Virginia. Shortly after that night, as she tells the story, she was forced to have sex with Prince Andrew of England, famed attorney Alan Dershowitz, and many others. Those known to have flown on Epstein's jet many times include Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, Donald Trump, and countless others. No legal action was brought against Epstein for years. The first case brought against him occurred in 2005 when a different girl's mother brought charges of sexual assault on behalf of her daughter. Many other victims came forward immediately thereafter, revealing Epstein had been running a pedophilia rape ring since at least 1993. Local law enforcement amassed a litany of evidence and multiple witnesses. It looked like a slam dunk case. Epstein faced life in prison for sex trafficking. What ensued was one of the saddest chapters in American legal and media history. 
the FBI stepped in and took over the case from local Florida law enforcement. The federal attorneys heard hours of damaging testimony from the victims themselves and their families, but chose to use a grand jury, which protected Epstein from the most threatening charges. Epstein's powerful attorneys, including Alan Dershowitz, who himself was a frequent traveler on the Lolita Express, secured a highly unusual non-prosecution from U.S. Attorney Alexander Acosta. It was a sweetheart deal that required him to plead guilty to one charge at the state level. In exchange, Acosta granted Epstein immunity and canceled an FBI probe into his activities. How is this possible? Acosta claimed orders had quote-unquote come from above that were quote-unquote above his pay grade. National media coverage was nowhere to be found. A New York Magazine piece entitled Billionaires Are Free was one of few national pieces on Epstein at the time, but it vindicated him with a shockingly permissive boys will be boys attitude. And that was that. The national media uncharacteristically dropped a story about sex and famous people. Indeed, the media ran away from the matter of a major sex trafficking ring as if from an infectious virus. Epstein had to register as a sex offender following the non-prosecution, but eight years later, he was still somehow flying on his personal jet with quote-unquote very young girls to his private Caribbean island on a weekly basis. It was as if he had never been convicted at all. The media stayed silent. Years later, after Virginia finally escaped Epstein's clutches, she married an Australian and took her new husband's name, Gaffray. The birth of her daughter prompted her to overcome her shame and speak out. Virginia contacted national news organizations and penned a 139-page expose about her experience, which was eventually submitted as evidence against Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. In 2016, she spoke directly with ABC News host Amy Robach. Robach was intrigued, and she took up the story. She arranged a flight to New York for Virginia, and Virginia felt confident enough to tell Robach the whole horrifying story in person and on the record. Robach recorded it all and spent hours preparing a report on the bombshell revelations. The story would finally expose Epstein for what he had done. ABC News never ran the story. No corporate media channel picked it up, despite Virginia's dogged efforts. If the main priority of American news organizations is to generate clicks and views, as many Americans believe, this story was surely a godsend. But they all ignored it. Why? We will answer this question in this book. So, Tony, one of the critiques we have of establishment media, the corporate media, is the click-like-share, the big tech model, sensationalism, uh, trivial stories, or somehow sensationalist stories should get picked up because that's what readers want. That's what viewers allegedly want. And so your question here is, wow, here comes a bombshell of a gift of all time that checks off all the salacious boxes, yet no attention. What do you make of that? It's why I picked this story to open the book, because... I think, first of all, it's nonpartisan. I think this is about the worst thing anybody could imagine doing, abducting hundreds of girls. There's no Democrat or Republican who could support this. So it's not one of those things where you can say, oh, that's a Democrat thing. That's a Republican thing. It's not about Trump. But the other thing is, yeah, it so perfectly paints this story where, yeah, everybody says, oh, the problem with the media is that they're just trying to make money. 
sure, they're trying to make money and that does often cause a lot of problems, but that's not the only thing. And that's what I want people to understand with this first story. Yeah, it's a story that seems to want to protect the power elite. That should come through between the lines. And of course, how that story has seemingly ended or paused for now is another show in and of itself. Ken Burrows, you wanted to come back in here and you wanted to maybe ask Tony another question or pose another frame for us. Well, one thought is, Tony, how can you be so optimistic sharing this? I mean, uh, your book ends up with some rather uh, optimistic tones and, and hope. How is it possible we can be optimistic with such a world that can be in denial of the most heinous uh, acts that we can think of? I do in the introduction, I talk about this. I think there's a little bit of the Pandora's box is a good metaphor. As we open the box, we're going to see all this nasty stuff, but at the bottom is hope. And I think that's even built as an acorn into this story. We do know about Jeffrey Epstein. I think throughout the 1900s, there were probably many more worse versions of this. I was just reading Whitney Webb, but she has several stories about people that did Jeffrey Epstein stuff all throughout the 1900s that were never caught. Mm -hmm. So I think what's going on is now we're learning about it. And that's going to be really distasteful. We're in a phase. We're in the second inning of a nine inning game of the internet disrupting media news control. And what that's going to look like is a lot of stories like this coming out more and more. We're going to learn about these things. I think they're coming out right now. And I talk about the term conspiracy theory and a lot of the stuff they're initially always called conspiracy theories or, or whatever they can call them. Disinformation, misinformation is a label for things that may be true, but they just don't serve the power establishment. And so I'm optimistic in the sense, now I have my darker moments, but I'm optimistic in the sense that I think we are in, again, the second inning of a nine inning game where we're learning the truth about what's really going on in the world. And the truth at first will piss you off and then it will set you free. That's what I believe. So yeah, so I am optimistic that we're moving into a time for the first time, maybe in human history, where we can know what's actually going on in the world. We can actually connect with people around the world without an intermediary force. We can have this interview, the three of us here, we can upload it to the internet, and any number of people could see it. Hundreds, thousands, millions, maybe a billion people, we don't know. That's the power of the internet. And that's something that never existed. Even 20 years ago, to do that, you would need the conduits of the big mainstream media machine. Well, just thinking, this is then the focus of Project Censored, is to find independent media that is willing to talk about these issues. I hope you're right that we can move in this direction, but also just a little pushback because, after all, we haven't heard much about Epstein. We haven't heard about these names that you mentioned. How do we really get to broadening our media diet, which I know you write about in the book? Great question. And that's why I put this idea of media consciousness in the subtitle of the book, because I think that's really what the goal is, is media consciousness. And what that is, is that's first coming to the truth, coming into contact with this idea that there's no one source. I wish I could write at the end of my book, here's the one perfect source for the news. And every day it's truthful. That doesn't exist. That's Santa Claus. It never did exist. Even when the First Amendment was written, when the Constitution was written, the founders knew every little publication had its own bias. Of course, everybody's trying to get you to think what they think. But media consciousness is this idea that by balancing your media diet, and I have a whole chapter about that, About the, and I have balancemediadiet.com. I'm building a website where people can learn how to balance their own media diets, and I'm, I'm building that website out. Redwhiteandblind.com. I mentioned that before. www.redwhiteandblind.com is where you can find me and my book. 
But the idea is you can get to media consciousness through balancing your media diet because you can hone your own mind. When you receive a headline, you receive some news source that comes in, you don't just immediately accept it or reject it. Oh, I accept it because it's my favorite news source or I reject it because it's Fox or it's NPR. People do this. Instead of that, you open yourself to multiple sources and you realize, okay, what's being said? Who's saying it? Who's not allowed to speak on this issue? And then even deeper, like, what do they want me to feel? Do they want me to be scared? Do they want me to be sad? Do they want me to feel triumphant about this because the person I'm supposed to hate is getting indicted? What do they want me to think and to feel? That's media consciousness. And it's something that we can all get to with just a little bit of work. Actually, this is a lot of overlap with the critical media literacy curriculum that we use here at Project Censored. Certainly we teach in classes. Your book sounds like it's very much in line with raising general awareness about information literacy. And even though we've only had a short segment here today, 30 minutes or so, it's clear that we have a lot of overlap with the things that you're doing, Tony Brasunas. And so we want to be sure to have you back on the program. And we want to talk more about that. We want to dive more deeply into Red, White, and Blind, your book, the subtitle, The Truth About Disinformation and the Path to Media Consciousness. So we just have like about a minute or so left here. And I just want to make sure that you you and Ken Burroughs both get a chance to remind people where to find your work and have uh, any parting thoughts for now in the spirit of to be continued. We will definitely be carrying on the conversation more. So Tony Brasunas, let's start with you. Delighted, Mickey. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of Project Censored and, and let's let's continue the conversation for sure. You can find me at redwhiteandblind.com. And if you want to learn how to spell my last name, you can go to tonybrasunas.com. But if you want to just remember www.redwhiteandblind.com, you can find my book there. You can find my Substack, and you can subscribe there. I also have a YouTube channel that I'm building, Facebook and Twitter. You can find all of that redwhiteandblind.com. Thank you so much. And people can find you and contact you because I know you do public talks, workshops. I know you, you've been doing a lot of that stuff around the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm going to be at this conference with Ken. Looking forward to that. And yeah, I have a number of appearances I've done. I'll continue to do that. I live up here in Sebastopol. I'm not too far away. Ken Burroughs, final thoughts. Actually, what comes to mind is a quote. It's by John Trudell. He, he says, when one leaves when one lives in a society where people can no longer rely on their institutions to tell them the truth, then truth must come from the larger culture and art. And so it's out there. We just have to seek for it, it seems. And in this era of censorship, maybe we should be questioning what's being censored and why as we move toward developing this media consciousness that you're, that you're talking about, Tony. Thanks so much, Ken Burroughs, San Francisco State University longtime contributor to Project Censored. On the website, we'll be posting a link to the event that's taking place at San Francisco State University. Tony Brasunas, it was wonderful to meet you today on the program. And as I said, we'll definitely have you back on. Author most recently of Red, White, and Blind, The Truth About Disinformation and the Path to Media Consciousness. Ken and Tony, thanks so much for taking time out to be with us on the Project Censored show today. Delighted to be here. Bye, everybody. Up next on the Project Censored show, Eleanor Goldfield talks with Dr. Margaret Flowers about healthcare. Some 15 million people getting kicked off of Medicaid sounds like something we should be concerned about. So stay tuned for Eleanor Goldfield's conversation with Dr. Margaret Flowers on the Project Censored show. Stay tuned.
Thanks, everyone, for joining us at the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad right now to be joined by Dr. Margaret Flowers, who is the director of Popular Resistance and host of Clearing the Fog. She is an advisor to the Board of Physicians for a National Health Program and volunteered as a congressional fellow during Obama's health reform process. Dr. Flowers, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Eleanor. I'd like to start off with what occurred on March 31st, the date that Biden and his Democratic Congress marked as the end of continuous coverage, thereby kicking some 15 million people off of Medicaid. And now states are set to begin dropping people from the rolls, meaning that the 90.9 million people or more than one in four Americans who were enrolled in Medicaid as of August 2022 will be facing life altering or in some cases, life ending upheavals in their ability to access care. So first off, I wanted to ask, how is it that Medicaid could just magically and elastically grow to offer coverage to millions of people, and then it has to suddenly snap back? The COVID-19 pandemic showed us a little sliver of what the U.S. government could do. I mean, it could give people checks. It could make them not have to pay their rent or pay their student loan payments. It could stop evictions and it could offer health care to so many people because not only did it expand Medicaid, but it also covered COVID-19 tests and vaccines. And if you had to be hospitalized or if you needed medication, nobody could be turned away if they had COVID-19 during the public health emergency. And that happened under Trump. It was the Trump administration that expanded funding for Medicaid to the states on the conditions, listen to this, because, you know, the Democrats, they're just always so disappointing, that nobody could be dropped and they couldn't restrict any of the benefits. That was under the Trump administration. But then, you know, Biden back in September told everybody, hey, pandemic's over, go back to your normal life. And so that gave members of Congress and the Biden administration the cover to say, well, we don't need this public health emergency anymore. As you say, it's it's so disappointing and remarkable to think that it was under Trump that all these people had access to this care. I want to make that distinction because I think some people, I mean, I myself have been on Medicaid. Some people listening might have also or be on Medicaid. And the call is for uh, nationally improved Medicare for all as opposed to Medicaid. Can you make that distinction? Why is it not nationally improved Medicaid for all? This is important because when Medicare and Medicaid were created in 1965, you had the Southern Dixiecrats, Democrats, who were racist and didn't believe that everybody should have health care. And so as there was this big push to create what people had hoped would become Medicare that could be expanded to everyone, Wilbur Mills was the chair of the Health and Educational Welfare Committee put in what he considered to be a poison pill, and that was separating Medicare from Medicaid. So Medicare being a national program for the elderly, but for the poor, doing it on a state-by-state basis. And this is known as the Southern strategy. It was used for other things as well, because when you make it a federal program, everybody in the country gets the same. When you make it a state-by-state program, it's up to the states to decide what's covered, who's covered, how they enroll, how often they have to enroll. And so they can make it a discriminatory system. And in fact, you know, when I was out in Colorado, it was a state senator who was a doctor who told me that when they make their Medicaid regulations, they know a certain number of people who are eligible won't sign up for whatever reason. 
they can't get it together to do that or they don't have access to what they need to do that. And they can't, they figure that in that, you know, we're going to save this much money because we made people have to do this. And that's going to be a barrier for them to get care. Well, under the Families First Act, under Trump, enrollment was continuous. Nobody had to worry about it. I mean, I, as you know, I adopted two children during that time from a different state. They were on Medicaid there. Medicaid rolled right over to here. No problem. That's the way it should be. But these barriers are intentional. That alone just offers a great example as to why so often people stay in the places that they are, even if they'd like to move oh, well, I have to stay in this terrible job. I have to stay in a state that I don't like because I'm shackled to my ability to access the oftentimes measly care that I do get here, but I get some. I know people who have done that and people who have gotten divorced, even though they didn't want to, because they were sick and they needed to qualify for Medicaid. It's a very perverse and sick system. But this is why we need a national system, because we don't want to leave it up to different states. We want everybody in the United States and the territories to have the same health care and the ability to go where you want to go. If you under a national Medicare for all system, if you're traveling wherever you are, you're still covered. If you need to move, you're still covered. Whatever your life status is and age, you're covered. And that's what other countries do. And, you know, we're the only wealthy nation that doesn't. So, you know, this is what we're calling for. And also in Medicare news, I, I recently saw that the Common Dreams had reported on this, that the United Health Group, which is a dominant entity in the very lucrative Medicare Advantage market, saw its stock jump over the past week as Wall Street analysts and investors have embraced the Biden administration's decision to delay reforms aimed at tackling abuse in the privately run but government-funded health program. <laughs> and uh, CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, said that Medicare Advantage payments would rise by nearly $14 billion next year under this new plan, with United Health Group alone seeing a potential $900 million in additional profit. That seems like there's, on the surface, a lot of money going into Medicare, but clearly not going actually to deliver care, but going into the pockets of these investors. What is actually going on? What is Medicare yeah. Advantage and what is that racket? This is something people need to understand because Medicare Advantage was started a few decades ago. The rationale that Congress gave was that people want choice. You know, they don't just want traditional Medicare. They want to be able to choose other plans as well. Of course, we can guess who made that talking point up and who wrote that legislation. And so there's been a steady privatization of Medicare, as in health insurance corporations like Cigna and others are allowed to offer plans. What's interesting is that the, the research shows that, one, they cherry pick their seniors. They have ways of doing it so that they go to senior centers because that's where your healthier seniors are going to be. They put their offices on the second or third floor with no elevator. So only people who can you know have the ability to walk up the stairs can get there. And they restrict services. So when people get sick and they start to realize, oh, hey, this isn't covering what I need to cover. My rehab is not going to be adequate or I have to pay so much out of pocket they drop out of the Medicare Advantage plans and go to the traditional plans. So they cherry pick off the healthiest ones. And then on top of that, they get more money for each enrollee than original Medicare does. And the fraud, they upcode, you know, maybe somebody has mild heart disease, they'll make it moderate heart disease, you know, just so they can charge a little bit more for that to the government. So since the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, which created this new Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which has been driving this, 
and actually the woman who was the architect of the ACA, Liz Fowler, who's an insurance corporate senior vice president formerly, she oversaw the writing of the ACA and that passage through Congress. Then Obama appointed her to Health and Human Services to write the regulations for it. And then she was put in charge of this Center for Innovation. And this has been driving this whole increasing privatization of Medicare, as well as Medicaid increasingly privatized, so that the vast majority of people on Medicaid are in these private, what they're called MCOs, managed care organizations, where they take 40 to 50% of the money they get from the government and put it into their CEO pay and you know administrative costs and not actually care. Traditional Medicaid has like a two or 3% overhead. So significantly different. And then they have been pushing these Medicare Advantage plans. And now under this new program, ACO Reach, under the Biden administration, it started under Trump, People called on Biden to end it, but instead they renamed it and kept the same program. People who are now in traditional Medicare under the ACO reach, private equity firms are buying up Medicare systems and enrolling physicians in it. So you may be in traditional Medicare, but if your physician is now in this ACO reach, you're effectively in a private Medicare program that you didn't choose or have any say over, and most people are not even aware of it. So Wendell Potter had an interesting study recently that found it used to be, you know, a few years ago, I was saying that the major health insurance corporations get more than 50% of their revenue from the government, either through Medicaid, Medicare, or the subsidies to buy insurance. Now for the top three, it's 90% of their revenue. So, I mean, the, the government is a cash cow. They would rather the government just cut them these big checks than have to worry about whether people can pay. So we're seeing this increasing privatization of our systems. And with that, discrimination, dropping patients. Uh, We had a doc here who saw mainly Medicaid patients at a hospital and the hospital canceled his Medicaid insurance because he was giving too much care, too much to his patients. This is the direction that we're going. And it's, it's a sad thing because people who advocate for universal system have been now placed in the position of just trying to defend the public systems that we have. And what you're describing is also so convoluted. It's like your doctor's in this system. You might think you're in this system. It's like, wow, it just sounds like such a fluster, like tight knitted spider web. Wow, just one system would just make this. But of course, then all of these companies would lose out on their cash cow of 90% of their income. So of course that's... Yeah, it's. I mean, the, the, the health insurance corporations are making, they're doing better than most of the other sectors, you know, industrial sectors in the United States. So that that says something. And the the insertion of private equity into our healthcare system um, has been really disastrous for our system and for people overall. Yeah. And I actually wanted to touch on that because you mentioned, you mentioned Wendell Potter's study and and Public Citizen also worked on putting this out, putting that report out and talking about the private equity toll on U.S. healthcare and like on dozens of areas. For instance, nearly half of all home healthcare deals in 2018 and 2019 involved private equity, and that actually increased in 2020. Another example, private equity companies have bought up three of the four major staffing companies for obstetrics uh, emergency departments and emulating some of the profitable tactics that they used. But in a gray area around the standards for defining live births as emergencies, which if you talk to a midwife, they make very clear being pregnant and giving birth is not an emergency unless it's an emergency. (laughs) They've been accused of classifying normal births as emergencies 
so they can charge patients additional fees, forcing C-sections on people when they're not necessary. And as one doctor put it with regards to this private equity boom, you can't serve patients and investors at the same time. And so I'm curious what your reaction is to this and whether you feel like this is something that seems to be growing. And if so, what was the what does the future hold if this continues unabated? You can't have a healthcare system that's based on profit and try to make it about health. And that's what's been so difficult for health professionals in this country is that for most people, you go into your job wanting to take care of patients and then you find that you're just a little cog in this big machine that really doesn't care about you or your patients. It just is what kind of numbers can you generate? So again, I would tie this back to Obama's Affordable Care Act, which put in place a system that has driven consolidation of our healthcare system in a way that we had not seen prior to that. So that what we're seeing is uh, something called vertical integration. So corporations come in, they have their own Medicaid and Medicare plans. They own the hospitals. They own the physician practices, the laboratories, the home health, long-term care centers. They own it all. It gives them tremendous control over that. And that was the situation that this one doctor locally that I knew got into, that he worked for a hospital that had its own Medicaid. And so when he was using too much care, they just dropped him and he lost his ability to take care of all those patients. But we've also seen in that same medical system that they shut down entire departments, pediatrics, obstetrics, psychiatry, with just a few days notice, like two days notice to all the staff. Your jobs are gone. Your department is closed. But they're building these huge outpatient centers for cardiology and for orthopedics because those are the big money makers. Or you see firms investing, you know, buying up hospitals and these things. This loads them with debt from the outset. Then they mismanage them and basically rob everything they can, and then they bolt and leave that facility. We're losing so many of our hospitals, rural hospitals closing down because these vulture capitalists come in and take them over. Long-term facilities, hospitals in cities, you know, St. Vincent's in New York, Hahnemann in Philadelphia, others out in LA, where, that have served low-income residents for 100 years, and then they get bought up by these private entities and sold off for luxury condos. This is what we're seeing, is that these corporations just see our healthcare system as a way to make profit. And as that continues to grow, it's going to continue to mean that, that people will lose access to care or face price gouging. We know that privately run entities have lower quality, lower standards, than the nonprofit ones. So it impacts the quality of care as well. It's a very disturbing direction. And also the, the whole idea of having like the small practices is gone because after the ACA, the insurance companies just started dropping a lot of the practices for no reason. It was random. Lost their ability to care for these patients that had this insurance and that drove them into a corporate system so they could be in that insurance. They need to be part of a big enough system to be included in that insurance so they could see their patients. And then that just turns them, again, they're, they're just a corporate entity. It's a matter of survival for them, but it's a miserable situation. So many people point to the ACA and they're like, well, you know, it did so much good and it's what we could do at the time. And it's really not what we could do at the time. That leads me to the next question. You pointed out that people end up kind of back on their heels defending the scraps that we have as opposed to demanding the basic human right of healthcare. 
And so do you feel like right now pushing for something stopgap, like let's well, let's get these 15 million people back on the rolls. Like, is it worth pushing for that? Or is it just like, you know what? No, we're done pushing for scraps. It's either this Medicare for all universal system or nothing. We should be pushing for a whole package of things, not just healthcare, but given the end of this public health emergency, there should be more clamor about not ending it, not kicking people off of their insurance, actually covering long-term the things that people need, like tests and masks and medications and, and care if they need it, pushing for better unemployment benefits, the things that we had you know, <laughs> under the Trump administration. We should be saying that we should have that. But I think what people have given up on, and, and we, we, must, we shouldn't give up on this, is continuing to push for a national health insurance or a national health system a universal healthcare system that's publicly financed, that covers everything. And that's because it's a public system, doesn't have the profit motive. We need to take that out. And in fact, there is a piece of legislation that's going to be introduced in the near future by Representative Pramila Jayapal, a Democrat from Washington State. She's introduced a Medicare for All Act previously. And there's a lot of good things about it, but it has some pretty glaring weaknesses. And so there's actually a call right now to push her to fix the legislation, because we know that you have to start out with the strongest piece of legislation that you can, because it's going to get whittled down and attacked as it goes through that whole process. So her legislation does not get rid of the for-profit sector, so they can continue to rake in the money off of the government, despite the fact that there's a clear plan for how to do that, how to buy out those services and, and continue to have those facilities. It doesn't include a just transition for people who lose their job because of the new system. That's something that old legislation had, you know, had a couple of years of salary guaranteed plus retraining, prioritization to get into the new system, to be hired into it. Half the population would go in one year and then another half would go in the other year. That doesn't make any sense. The legislation that we were advocating for was like, on this day, everybody in the country is in. That's the simplest way to do it. It's the most cost-effective way to do it. And then it doesn't include a mechanism for funding. So the United States has one of the most regressive healthcare funding schemes in the world, where if you're poor, you pay more for out of you know for your care than if you're wealthy as a proportion of your income. Uh, we need to make sure that we turn that around and that it is the wealthier people who are paying more into the system. The long and short answer is we should be demanding everything. But we should definitely be focused on pushing for a national system and not get distracted away from that. Because the only way we're going to win a national system is when we're loud enough and strong enough to demand that we have it. I'm just caught wondering if her bill does not get rid of the for-profits. I mean, then you can't actually have universal health care if it is still a system with a for-profit aspect. Then it can't actually be care-based if it's profit-based. Right. You know, in the Sanders legislation, the same thing. It it was mind-boggling because we were meeting with both of them and saying this doesn't make sense because their whole point was, well, we're going to regulate the for-profits. We also regulate our private health insurance. That hasn't worked very well. They either hide what they're doing or sometimes we actually are successful in auditing them and we find out that people submit a claim. The insurance company is supposed to cover it and they just toss it in like one in five in Maryland. They just toss them in the trash. Or this whole system that was exposed recently where the medical directors of these health insurance corporations are not even actually reviewing the claims that come in. It's a computer-generated system. The docs sign off in batches of it, and they're able to deny care that should be covered to tens of thousands of people every day. 
If you think that your health insurance company is actually looking at your case and whether that care is medically necessary, it's not. Most people have to really fight to get their, their care covered. And that's a calculation, too, because most people don't have the time or the energy or the ability to fight it. So they figure, well, a, a lot of people who would fight it won't. And so we'll get rid of them. And then there's like, you know, a small percentage of people that will fight hard enough that we finally say, OK, fine. And then it doesn't really dent their bottom line at all anyway, because it's such a small percentage of people who can do that. Exactly. As we well know from a good friend of ours who was denied care and everybody had to fight very hard to expose yeah. that. If you don't have that social network or you're, you can't market yourself well enough on GoFundMe, you know, people are really in trouble here in the United States. And it's, so it's such a capitalist system, right? You have, to, you have to market yourself to be able to get donations so that you can live. It's cruel. So Dr. Flowers, how do you feel that people can best get involved with this issue? You know, there's a number of organizations out there you know, healthcare for all type of groups or physicians for a national health program or this national single payer coalition that is organized by some folks that I know and who are doing really good work. You know, the first steps are always education. People need to learn about this. And Physicians for a National Health Program has a speakers bureau. So if you have an organization, you can reach out to PNHP and find a local member who will come and, and talk to your group. Health affects everything. So everybody needs to be coming together around this issue and, and fighting for it. And so organizing and then putting pressure on your local legislators, as well as, you know, folks are finding alternative ways of dropping out of the corporate system and finding ways to provide care through mutual aid efforts. And I know a family doc out in Albuquerque who left corporate medicine and opened a, a practice that's patient controlled and very affordable and it's expanding. It's working. They don't even do billing they give their patient a bill when they leave the office, but they don't go beyond that. But yet more than 90% of their patients are paying their bills, even if it's coming by each week and dropping off five or 10 bucks until it's paid off because the clinic is actually serving them and they care about it. They want it to continue to exist. So people are doing that as well. And I think all of these types of things need to be done. There's a lot of us so folks can plug in based on where they see their strengths and the needs in their community to do that. But I think one thing that's become, personally, that I believe has become a distraction is the effort on state legislation, because we can't do this at the state level without making significant changes to federal law. And if we're going to fight to make changes to federal law, let's just ask for a national health program and fight for that so that everybody has it and not like a few big states like California and New York create what they think are going to be systems and then all that progressive activism is then channeled into trying to make that system work or get the federal changes. And we lose a big chunk of folks from the fight for a national system. It seems like unless you secede, like unless California became its own country, which I mean, it could, it's the sixth largest economy in the world, then you're still stuck. Like you're stuck mm -hmm. in the, that state system. If you go across the border, all of a sudden you're in, you know, the no man's land of healthcare. It just seems like a very... Again, like you pointed out, like fighting for something that is less than what you want just because you think you might be able to get that. That's been the problem for the last more than 100 years. There's a medical historian, David Barton Smith, who's written some very good work on this. And there's actually a movie that came out of his book called The Power to Heal that chronicles the whole struggle for Medicare and Medicaid in the 1960s. But he breaks up our last hundred years into five phases. And in each phase, people compromised instead of asking for what they wanted. And, and as a result, 
our system has just been getting worse and worse and worse over that whole time. So we need to stop compromising. Healthcare is fundamental. We know how to fix it. It's very simple. Everybody in the same system, public financing. So it's transparent. That saves tremendous hundreds of billions of dollars a year would be saved if we went into a single system. Just because you cut out all that profiteering, all those administrators, we have an incredibly bulky system of administrators who are just there to make money personally and to make the system more complicated for other people. They're obstacles to care in our country. So we need to stop compromising and, and really finally demand what it is that we need. Very well put. And I think a good way to wrap it up. I definitely recommend that folks check out popularresistance.org. It is such a an amazing hub of information and indeed tools for organizing and the like. Dr. Flowers, is there anywhere else that you'd like to tell folks to look for your work or things related to this issue? Follow my podcast, Clearing the Fog, which you can find at Google Play and some others, but it's on Popular Resistance as well. Currently, right now, we're not running the, the campaigns that we were running in the past, but the National Single Payer Group, folks should look for that, National Single Payer, and plug in with them if you want to really work on healthcare. And then Physicians for National Health Program, you don't have to be a physician to join that. You know, those are the main things right now. Popular resistance is the best way to find me. And I also work with the United National Anti-War Coalition and the U.S. Peace Council and the Sanctions Kill campaign. So folks want to check those out, too. Thanks so much, Dr. (laughs) Flowers. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show today. I'm Mickey Huff, founding co-host of the program. Eleanor Goldfield is our current co-host and an associate producer. Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>